Well, I'm continuing a series tonight called Let's Talk About It. Let's Talk About It. And this series is based on responding to a lot of the criticisms and doubts that skeptics might have about Christianity. And I started this series off with a longer quote, and I'll just read you a part of it tonight. This guy, he asked the question, you know, and why is the Bible so full of contradictions? No one talks about it. And maybe you've heard someone say the Bible is full of contradictions. And some people, if you were to take this quote at face value, it would lead you to believe that people think that there's like a cover up or something. That The Bible is full of contradictions and, and there's a cover up and nobody will admit it. Nobody's talking about it. OK, well, let's talk about it then. Let's talk about the Bible, which was written by about 40 authors over the period of about 1600 years. And these guys, they wrote the Bible as God inspired them. They had different perspectives and different writing styles. They wrote to different audiences, and their writings each had different purposes. And yet, miraculously, they tell one complete, cohesive story. Yeah. You think about how unlikely that is, how impossible that is. Imagine just trying to get 10 of your friends together and agree on anything. You couldn't even agree where to eat dinner. You couldn't agree about the best athlete of all times or your favorite president. But getting 40 guys who live 1,600 years apart to agree, that is a sign that God was moving. This book is not just a simple book. You know, it's a complex and rich book that teaches us the purpose of life where we come from, how to be happy, how to be close to God and forgiven of sins, and even how to receive eternal life. It's amazing to think that the Bible has been preserved even as it's been thousands of years since it was first written. It has impossible accuracy. And even though people have tried to destroy it and suppress it, and undermine it, it still prevails. It still stands as the inerrant, infallible word of God. Right. It's amazing when you think about how many people have tried to, to stop Christianity from spreading and even destroy the Bible. When Alexander the Great divided his empire into four different segments, all the Jews were placed under the rule of Antiochus of Epiphanes, and he was called the Madman. When your nickname is the Madman, you crazy. And he launched a bloody persecution of the Hebrew people, attempting to destroy all the Jewish scriptures. Anyone who was caught with a copy was sentenced to death. Then the Roman emperor Diocletian, he unleashed terrible persecution against Christians, demanding every copy of scripture be burned and people in possession of it be killed. Critics have been trying to discredit the Bible since the second century and unable to do so. The Bible survived even attempts of the Roman Catholic Church to suppress it. Going back to the Council of Trent, the fourth rule said that it would be more harm than good. It would do more harm than good for average Christians to have the Bible in their own language. So the Roman Catholic Church said that no one is allowed to have scripture in their possessions. Other, otherwise, they could not have their sins forgiven is what they said, which is funny because like, if you read what the Bible actually says, you'll see that's not how it works. Right. Uh, forgiveness comes from God directly. Then we see philosophers try to take it down. One guy, a French philosopher, a very famous named Voltaire, he was a deist and he hated the Bible. He grew increasingly hostile against God and Jesus Christ, and he tried to destroy people's faith in the Word of God. And honestly, for many people in the French uh, region, he did. 
In a lot of ways, he inspired events that took place during the French Revolution. And during the French Revolution, I don't know if everybody realizes this, around 1789, but the French people completely rejected the word of God. They seized control of churches. They killed priests and nuns. They destroyed religious symbols like crosses in public places. They set up cults of reasoning and logic in former churches. They completely denied scripture at this time. Now think about this. During during this time period since that happened, America has had one government. But since that time, the French people have had somewhere between 25 to 30 governments. Their government just keeps falling. And you could really trace it back to that point where they rejected scripture. Voltaire said that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would be treated like a forgotten work from antiquity. And yet, most of us do have a Bible, but I don't have a copy of Voltaire's works, I got to say. So a lot of people have tried to take it down and suppress it, but it still prevails. If you search for the best-selling books of all time, you'll find the charts are topped by The Lord of the Rings with 150 million copies sold, and then the entire Harry Potter series with 500 million copies sold, and then the Guinness Book of World Records says that in just a 160-year period between about 1815 to 1974, they estimate about 5 billion Bibles have been printed. It's pretty cool, right? I do think it's kind of funny that the next best-selling series is a story about a boy with a suspect birth who had powers to save people from the forces of evil by calling on the name of power available to him through witchcraft and sorcery. See, the devil can't even get his own story. He's got to plagiarize and counterfeit our amazing gospel story. And I'm not saying it's a sin to read the Harry Potter novels. You know, I know a lot of parents out there are just happy their kids are reading at all. But I wish you'd be that happy about them reading the Bible. No other religious text can compare to the Bible because only the Bible is the word of God. And I know a lot of other religions claim that their texts come from God. But when you compare them to the Bible, it doesn't even come close. There is no comparison. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible, it comes from God. He breathed it out, and it's useful for you. It's all useful to correct you and to teach you. Sometimes I got to be taught. Sometimes I got to be rebuked. I don't know about you. And it trains us in righteousness. It helps us to become more like Jesus. Critics say it's full of contradictions. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that it's perfect. It claims to be without fail and without error. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Psalm 19, 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And the perfection of the Bible reflects its author. 2 Peter 1, 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So people have asked, well, you know, the Bible was written by men, and maybe you've wondered, like, well, maybe these men were just writing out good ideas and their opinions, and, you know, maybe they meant, well, how do we know it really came from God? Well, the Bible does tell us that the ideas in your Bible They did not come from men, but men were carried along. In other words, they provided the pencil and the 
hands and God is who inspired them down to the very words that they wrote under his inspiration. The words didn't come from him, they came from God. Atheists and skeptics and even sinners in general, they really want to believe that there are contradictions in the Bible because if they can believe that, then they can say that it's not the word of God and they can continue ignoring it. But when you recognize that the Bible is true and the word of God, then it interrupts your regularly scheduled sinning program. And you've got to deal with the fact that, man, without God, there's a problem. The Bible's perfect. It's the word of God. It is inconvenient to sinners, but it's the the word of God, which leads to life for everyone who believes what it says. I want you to know right up front, I'm going to say this very clearly to kick us off. There are no contradictions in the Bible. There are none. But Pastor Ryan, I heard, nope, I promise you there are none. I promise. And I want to talk about why some people think there are contradictions and help you to understand it and wrap your mind around it. And the purpose of this message is to build your faith in the Word of God. Okay, a lot of messages I preach are from the Word of God and helping you to apply Scripture to your life. The purpose of this message is to help you believe what the Word of God says. The more you trust it, the easier it is to do what it says. The more you do what it says, the more your life will be blessed. And that's why we want to trust it completely. Now, people think that there are contradictions sometimes because they come to the Bible looking for contradictions. And if you come to Scripture looking for contradictions, it's easy to find little things to try to nitpick and point out claiming their contradictions. Whereas if you come to the Bible believing it's true and working to make it harmonize, then it's easy to see that happen as well. It's called a presuppositional discrepancy or a bias that people have. You know, for example, atheists and Christians both have the same scientific evidence available to them. We don't have different evidence. We have the same evidence. We just interpret it differently. We both believe the universe had a beginning. Christians just believe that God was behind that beginning. We recognize that in a sense, we're biased. We believe it's true. And we want it to be true. Because if it's not, we literally have zero hope. On the other hand, atheists want it to be untrue. Sinners want the Bible to be untrue. And so they look for contradictions. One of the reasons people think there are contradictions is that over time, language has changed. And some of the alleged discrepancies occur because of the way language has changed and people don't understand that. So it's interesting that while Hebrew, for example, has changed very little, basically not at all, English is always undergoing major changes, isn't it? If you just try texting to some teenagers today, you'll realize that you don't even understand half of what they're saying. It's just like jumbled words and emojis and you don't know if it's good that something's sick or if it's dope or what. You're like, I don't even know what it is. I'm going to read you John 3.16 from Old English in 990 AD. It says, I have no idea how to read that. But that's John 3.16. It's just English from a thousand years ago. So you can see how language changes. It looks jarbled, and that's English. I'll show you Philemon, verse 7 in the King James Version, to show you how language changes. It says, For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. <laughs> so you read that and you're like, 
That seems kind of personal, you know? I don't really need to know about how your bowels are refreshed. You just keep that between you and yourself. What are you even talking about? Your bowels. We don't want to know about your colonoscopy, you know? Well, that's language changing. In King James's day, in 16, early 1600s, the bowels were considered the seat of the emotions. So if they had pop bands back then, they'd be singing songs like, quit playing games with my bowels, Mm-mm, with my bowels. Be like, girl, I love you with all my bowels. And today, we don't say that. We say, I love you with all my heart. But you can try telling your girl you love her with all your bowels and see how it goes. <laughs> and so I show, that, I show you that to help you understand. Here's an example. Genesis 1.28 in the King James Version. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. So he's talking to Adam and Eve. And skeptics look at this verse and they see the word replenish. And they say, look, contradiction, replenish. Replenish, because that's Adam and Eve, and, and if they have to replenish the earth, and that means there must have been people before them, and now they have to refill it. But see, back in this day, the word replenish meant a different thing than it means today. To us, it means to refill something that had been full but has been depleted. To them, it more broadly just meant to fill. So it's not a contradiction. It's that language has changed, and some people don't take the time to understand that. A lot of contradictions happen because of misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. So we read things and we don't always understand because we're sometimes reading about a culture that existed 2,000, 3,000 or more years before ours. And it makes sense that we don't always understand what we're reading, especially if we're not historians and archaeologists. And you read about, for example, Jesus saying, Three days and three nights, I'll be buried in the earth, and then I'll rise again. But if you kind of look through the history of the Bible and the timeline that most people believe is true, we believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday, and then he was buried, and then he rose on Sunday morning. And so you kind of start wondering, like, that seems like two nights and a day and a couple half days. And it's not that it's a contradiction, but it's that we don't always understand. In the Jewish culture, the way that they measure days, it's different than how we measure days. When I say, I'll see you in one day, you tend to think like maybe tomorrow, maybe in 24 hours. The way that the Jews measured days was anything that happened at any point of the day counted as a whole day. So when Jesus was killed on Friday... That counted the whole previous night because the Jews also started the day at sundown. So right about two hours from now, they would consider Monday has started, in other words. So Friday night, that counts as one night. Jesus was crucified on Friday, Saturday night, and then Sunday he rose again. And because he rose on Sunday, you count the entire day Sunday as well. It's not a contradiction. It's just a misunderstanding because of this being a different culture. And so it's important for us to figure that out. A lot of people think there are contradictions because of undiscovered truth. Undiscovered truth. Many times people think that something in the Bible doesn't look like it's true or there's no evidence for it, but it's not that there is no evidence. It's just that people haven't discovered the evidence yet. For example, in the Old Testament, it refers to the Hittite civilization 
that was mentioned over 50 times. And prior to the 19th century, there was no archaeological evidence of the Hittite civilization at all outside of the Bible. And a lot of skeptics said, see, you can't trust the Bible as a historical document. There's no record of this nation, this huge civilization. And then they found it. They found the capital of the Hittite nation in northern Turkey. It's not that it wasn't true. They just hadn't found it yet. Similar things have taken place relating to King David, to the city of Nazareth. For some time, skeptics were saying there's no record of a city of Nazareth. People saying there is no Jericho. We haven't found Jericho. And then they found Jericho. And would you believe it? All the walls were busted down and then lit on fire the way that the Bible describes. It's interesting, a lot of skeptics have said that the biblical account of Joseph and the Hebrew people being enslaved in Egypt and then leaving in the great exodus, there's no record for it in Egyptology, and they use that to say that can't trust the Bible. But today, a lot of archaeologists and Egyptologists are coming together and acknowledging that there's a problem with the Egyptian timeline, the traditional timeline. And many Egyptologists are saying we need to recreate the timeline because we've made errors. The Bible was right all along, but we made errors. And the reason that Egyptologists weren't seeing signs for the Hebrew people is because the Hebrew people had already left in the timeline they were looking at. But if you go back to the middle kingdom of Egypt, there's evidence for Joseph and the Hebrew people multiplying and then being enslaved and a famine. And there's evidence of all of a sudden the Hebrew people leaving suddenly with all the wealth of the Egyptians. And then the Egyptian empire plummets. There's no uh, mummy of the Pharaoh who was in power at that time. Why? Because he was drowned in the Red Sea. His firstborn son wasn't mummified. Uh, he never ruled, rather, because he died in the plagues. In other words, the Bible was never wrong, but archaeologists and scientists, because they're people, they can be wrong. And oftentimes it takes them a while to catch up to what God said in his word. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That great. I know. It's so cool. And then a lot of times people think there are contradictions because of incorrect context. Incorrect context. If you read something out of context, you can make anything seem like a contradiction, right? right. You have to understand the context. For example, people get confused because the Bible says, do not judge or you will be judged. And then in other places it says, to judge. <laughs> and they say that seems like a contradiction. It's not once you understand the context. The context, for example, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Jesus was talking to religious, self-righteous people who were holier than thou and looking down their nose. And Jesus was helping them understand, you've got your own problems. If you don't show other people mercy, you won't receive mercy. But then in John 7, verse 24, shows us Jesus saying, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. See, if you read all of scripture, you quickly realize there's a wrong way to judge and a right way to judge. You got to understand the context. A true contradiction only occurs when one statement excludes the possibility of another being true. So as Christians, we should operate under the law of non-contradiction. Theologian James Boyce says this, if the Bible is truly from God and if God is a God of truth, then if two parts seem to be in opposition or in contradiction to each other, it's actually our interpretation of one or both of these parts that must be an error. 
So the problem has never been with the inspired word of God, but with uninspired interpreters of the word of God. Sometimes we just get it wrong and we read it and we think it means one thing. And then man, later we realize it didn't mean what we thought it meant. It's not that God was wrong. We're wrong. I'll give you some examples uh, where just because two things are said that don't line up on the surface, it doesn't mean it's a contradiction because more than one thing can be true at the same time. So, for example, uh, when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem in in Mark and Luke and John, it says that Jesus' disciples, they went and found a young donkey, a colt. They brought it back and Jesus sat on it and rode it into the city. But in Matthew, it says they brought back a colt and its mother, and Jesus rode them into the city. And so skeptics would say, look, contradiction, contradiction. The whole thing's false, but it's not a contradiction because Matthew wasn't contradicting the other guys. He was just providing more detail. He was just letting us know it wasn't even just one colt. There was actually a colt and the mama donkey leading the way for the young cult to carry Jesus into Jerusalem. And it's not that Jesus was riding both of them. He didn't have like one leg over both donkeys. Like, come on, guys, work together here. Right. But it's just a way of speaking. He rode them into the city. It's like if a cowboy said, I rode the horses down from the pass. We don't think that he literally rode all the horses, like crowd surfing on all the horses. Right. It's just how people talk. Or here's another example. Judas's death is a common thing that people point to and they call a contradiction. In Matthew 27, it says that he hanged himself and died. And in Acts chapter one, it says he fell and his insides burst open and his bowels gushed out. There's bowels again. People say that's a contradiction. This guy says hanged. This guy says fell. It's not a contradiction. In fact, both things happened. And it's funny that in 2004, the BBC's uh, news reported that a 50-ton sperm whale had washed up on the beach of Taiwan and died, and scientists were transporting it through the city, but because of the natural decomposing process, gas was building up inside the well. And, and when the pressure got great enough, the whale's belly exploded and blood and guts went everywhere. And so we know that the Bible tells us in Luke that... Judas fell and his insides burst open. But in Acts, or rather in Acts that his insides burst open, in uh, Matthew it says that he hanged himself. And so if he hanged himself, we believe that he hanged himself, and then he might have been hanging there for a while and swelling, and the same kind of decomposing process could have been happening. And then either the rope broke or it was cut or untied, and he fell and he burst open. So one of the guys was telling us how he died. The other guy was telling us what happened after he died. It's not a contradiction, but we can harmonize the accounts and both of those things can possibly be true. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay, so I'm going to go forward. Critics will say that the Bible has been altered and corrupted over time. It's funny how people tell me that. Well, you know, it's been corrupted and altered over time based on what evidence? People just like to say things, don't they? It's funny how they just like to say things. John 10, 35 says, and you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. You're not going to change the message. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Many people have tried to to wipe out Christianity and the word of God, and nobody has even come close to pulling it off. People will say that 
you know, it's been translated so many times, so how can I really trust it? Because it's been translated. Well, it seems like in this day and age, we would have no problem knowing that it's very possible to translate something and maintain accuracy, right? I mean, you can order a a Big Mac in America or order a Big Mac in China, and you're still going to get a Big Mac at the end of the day. Regardless of what it's called in that culture, it's not that hard for us to properly translate things. And we can really trust our translation. Most of us read the English translation of the Bible, and we can trust it because we're able to go back and compare what we read to the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts that were really written just very briefly after the original autographs. And we can see that, man, these things line up directly so we know it's accurate. And we also know that God is okay with man-made translations of his word. Because we see that Jesus and his disciples oftentimes quoted from the Septuagint. How many of you know what the Septuagint is? Not many, but that's okay. Uh, The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that existed in Jesus' day. Seventy-two Jewish scholars came together and translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and it was commonly used in that region by Jews and other people alike. And Jesus and the disciples quoting from it endorses the fact that God is okay with translations. People wonder if there could have been possible errors when the word of God was copied between old manuscripts and new manuscripts. You got to think there have been thousands and thousands of copies made of the word of God. Now, if I asked you to copy something a thousand times, I think we'd agree there's a pretty good chance that at some point you might, you know, write a word down twice or misspell something or forget a punctuation mark, right? Most of us would probably make those mistakes. I know I would. Thank God for autocorrect. Amen. Amen. And so we know that over the thousands of years that scribes have occasionally made copying errors. Now, many, many, many of them, almost all of them, are very, very easy to identify and correct because there are so many other thousands of other copies. So it's pretty easy to say, oh, no, see, the the thousand other copies here show us that that is actually just a, a copyist error. And people might wonder, I've wondered, you know, well, God, why didn't you just make it supernaturally so that all the copies would be 100% flawless? And logically, I feel like it makes sense that God really couldn't do that without taking away our free will. For example, if I wrote down John 3.16 and I intentionally wrote it down wrong, God would have to supernaturally come in and change it back to what it was supposed to be, right? And so it makes sense that humans have made some minor copying errors when it comes to punctuation and spelling or repeating a word accidentally. But we have high, high, high levels of confidence that those mistakes have been caught and properly dealt with. There's a couple places in the Bible where scholars wonder if there could be copying errors. And we're not even really sure because it could be an error or it could be true. For example, here's one. 1 Kings 4.26. It says, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And then in 2 Chronicles 9.25, there's what looks like a parallel passage. It says, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, first, 
both of these things actually could be true. You notice the details that the first verse, it says he had 40,000 stalls of horses. The second passage says 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. So it could, some scholars think, be a copyist error where somehow the number just got recorded improperly in some manuscripts and then that error continued on for thousands of years. Or other scholars say it could be that the 40,000 stalls for just horses were smaller stalls housed within bigger housing units that held both horses and chariots. Does that make sense? So it could be that both things are true. It could be a copyist error. But when we talk about copyist errors, we know that we know what they are, and we know that they don't affect anything significant whatsoever. In fact, recent discoveries have showed us with even more confidence that what we're reading today is accurate to what was written thousands and thousands of years ago. The greatest discovery archaeologists call, call it of the 20th century was when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were dated to about 250-ish BC, so that's before Christ. Before they were found, the oldest Old Testament copies we had were from the 10th century AD. And so, you know, we're reading based off of those, and they found these scrolls that were 1,200 years older. And when they first found them, a lot of Christians got nervous, like, well, man, it's been a long time since then. What are they going to say? Are they going to line up? What if they say a bunch of things that are different? And do you know that when they translated them, every Old Testament book was found there except for Esther in those caves. And it's the exact same as what we're reading today. It's just more confirmation. And so you have to think, man, if God could preserve what we're reading today from scrolls, scrolls that were written 2,200 years ago, it just makes sense that we can trust he was also able to preserve them over the thousands of years leading up to that point as well. When it comes to the New Testament, it's not even funny how many copies we have of the New Testament manuscripts. Scholars confirm that we have 99.99% of what was originally written written in Greek, and the remaining 0.001% is inconsequential details. We have so many copies of the New Testament manuscripts, other archaeologists called it embarrassing riches. We have embarrassing riches of copies and archaeological evidence. In fact, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament just from the times when early church fathers quoted it in their letters to each other. Even if all the Bibles and manuscripts disappeared, we could still reconstruct the whole thing. It's amazing. Then you think about this, and maybe, maybe you have to wonder this, you know, what, what if along the way church leaders decided to edit the Bible? You know, would we be able to catch that? Would we know? First off, we would catch it because there were so many thousands of manuscripts. So if even one dude decided to start messing with it, other people would have caught it. Then it is important to note that the Bible says some things that would lead me to believe that if you believed in God at all, you would really hesitate to think about messing with the Bible. And I'll show you why. Revelation twenty two eighteen. 18. Here's what God says. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book. Here it is. If anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. 
And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. In other words, if you mess with my book, you're going to hell. So if you believe in God at all, even if there's a part of the Bible that you're like, man, I don't really like this part. It's so inconvenient. I really wish I didn't have to do this. You're like, maybe I should edit it. But I don't really want to go to hell, so I guess I shouldn't. You know? And I think that's a pretty strong motivation. I know, I know, it's an amazing, it's an amazing example, right? You're like, edit God's book and go to hell or don't. Okay, I'm gonna go with don't. We can go back 2,000 years ago with manuscripts and verify that they say the same thing that our Bible says today. So I'm going to answer a couple questions real quick. Do Christians need to read the Old Testament? Do we even need the Old Testament? The answer is yes, we do. The Old Testament shows us God's holiness and our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. In fact, I think it's so important to mention that God is the same God throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. He gets this bad rap from some people like he was so mean in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament days, you know, he must have had a nap because he's nice now. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament is filled with the mercy and love of God for humanity. It is actually insane how merciful God is to his people in the Old Testament. Like, I would have smoked him a thousand times over, but God just kept forgiving, forgiving, and forgiving. And in the New Testament, we still see that God judges sin. He's the same throughout the entire Bible. Now, I want to kind of show you some things here. The Old Testament is viewed as the Holy Scriptures by the New Testament. Romans 1, 2, uh, 2 says that God promised the good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, reaffirming the Old Testament is Scripture. Jesus reaffirms that, Matthew 15, verse 3. And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother. That's Jesus, the Son of God, saying, God says, honor your father and mother. So I know some people, they wrestle with, well, can I really believe everything the Old Testament says? You know, all the things that it says. Some of those things are kind of weird, like the story of Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. Am I really supposed to believe that? Well, here's the reason that you should believe that. Because Jesus did. Jesus believed it. And my general philosophy for life is if you can predict your death and resurrection and then pull it off, we're going with whatever you say. Right. So, man, why do Christians need the Old Testament? Because we're saved by grace and we're not under the law. I mean, this comes up actually all the time. This question gets asked. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, we still need to know what the law, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, the rest of it, what they say, because then we can actually appreciate what Jesus has done for us. Nothing in Christianity makes sense without the Old Testament. I mean, you start reading in the middle of this book, and you're like, I don't even know what's going on. But the Old Testament provides context and the beginning of the story. So we need the Old Testament. People get confused, though. They're like, man, but there's so much weird stuff in the Old Testament, you know? Yeah, you say this is a sin, Ryan, but the Old Testament also says that eating shellfish is a sin. So maybe it's up for debate. Well, I want to help you understand the Old Testament better. The Old Testament law can be categorized three ways, and this will help you understand it. There's civil law, 
ceremonial law and moral law. That's a way to break it down and understand it better. Civil law was given by God to the people of Israel to govern their nation in Old Testament times. So God gave them the law to limit the destructiveness of their sin. Just like we need laws today to keep us from being crazy, they did too. And civil law talks about things like how to handle crime. If you accidentally damage someone's property, how you should pay restitution to them. If you got someone pregnant, like, guess what? You're marrying her. That was how it went back then. It talks about what to do when people surrendered in warfare. Societal law, the civil law, it governed the people, and it doesn't apply to us anymore because even the New Testament and Jesus both endorse following the laws of the land. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And the New Testament also says to honor the governing authorities that are all appointed by God. So civil law doesn't apply to us. Ceremonial law was given to teach people how to worship God properly under the Old Testament covenant. It also serves a purpose, even for us, to highlight God's holiness and our sinfulness. The ceremonial law covered things like dietary and clothing restrictions, what kind of feasts they were supposed to have, how to have sacrifices, things like circumcision, what kind of robes the priests had to wear, what food was okay, so don't eat shellfish, no pork, or else they'll make you ceremonially unclean, things about women's cycles and all kinds of stuff. It had to do with the ceremonial law and being spiritually clean or unclean. So this no longer applies to us either because Jesus has opened up our access to the throne room of heaven. When he tore the veil in the temple, it was God's way of saying, you have access to me now directly. You can all come into my presence as my children. Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross, when you accept him as your savior, you're made clean spiritually forever. So the ceremonial law doesn't need to be followed anymore. Additionally, in the New Testament, it confirms this. For example, God gives Peter a vision of all the animals and says to Peter, well, now you can eat all of these animals. So praise God, I'm eating bacon and I'm living in freedom, right? Yeah, that's the loudest amen all night is for bacon. Thank you, Jesus. So it doesn't apply to us. It's it's a good purpose It helps us to understand, but it doesn't apply to us. But then there's moral law. And moral law, you can call it, illustrates the heart of God. Talks about justice and honor and sexual conduct and says things like not to lie, don't steal, don't kill, to honor your mother and your father or all authority. Um, And this is still relevant to us because God's heart doesn't change. The moral law helps us to understand what's good and what's not good, what's not pleasing to God. And it's kind of like the moral law for God's people, it was like training wheels until Jesus came. Just like, you know, we got to teach little kids what to do and what not to do. And we have to have rules like speed limits because you can't just trust people to do the right thing. And, and little kids need babysitters. The Bible actually compares the Old Testament to the babysitter of God's people. And then when Jesus came, it was like for Christians, God's way of saying, OK, you're all grown up now. 
And now you're not going to just do what's good because you're trying to follow the law. You're going to do what's good because it pleases me. And because I say it's good. Because you want to do what's good. It's a totally different thing to do what's good so you don't get in trouble versus doing what's good because you want to do what's good, right? In John 15, verse 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He actually elevated the standard of the moral law. So, you know, in Old Testament times, if you told me don't lie, see, I can find all kinds of loopholes around that, can't I? Well, it wasn't really a lie. I just didn't tell you everything. But when you tell me I have to love you as Jesus loved me, there are no loopholes anymore because Jesus is the truth. And if God told me the truth through Jesus, then I've got to give you the whole truth. It's not just don't steal. Now it's don't steal and be generous. He elevates the stand. It's not just don't commit adultery. It's don't even lust after someone who's not your wife. God elevates the standard. So we know that the moral law, the Old Testament, the principles of it still apply to us. It helps us to have that perspective, though. Civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. Should we consider the New Testament scriptures as the word of God? Yes, we should. The disciples, they considered Paul's letters to be equal in authority with the Old Testament scriptures, even in that day as they were being written. Second Peter 3.15, this is Peter speaking here, okay? He says, remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul, that's the apostle Paul, wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. So Peter was comparing Paul's writings to other parts of Scripture and saying it's equal in authority. And it is encouraging to me to know that here's Peter, right? And he did a three-year internship with the Son of God, and he still found parts of the Bible difficult to understand. Yeah, some of it's difficult to understand. You got, like, I'm just a simple fisherman, and it's kind of hard. And today we read the Bible, too, and we're like, yeah, man, this is kind of hard to understand, which is, in some ways, evidence that it came from the mind of God and not from men. Many people today struggle with the Bible because they like some parts of it, but not other parts. But I need you to understand, church, that the Bible stands or falls as a whole. In Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. I want you to understand that if you won't believe all of it, you might as well not believe any of it. If you won't trust what it says about creation, why trust what it says about salvation? Many people like the verses that says that God loves them, but they don't like the verses that say God will judge sin. If the Bible is wrong about hell and a lot of people don't like the hell part, why would you have faith that it's right about heaven? I mean, is it true or is it not true? I would say if you can't believe the story of Jonah, why would you believe the story of Jesus? It stands or falls as a whole, and that's why we believe it's all true as Christians. And maybe some of you are struggling to believe that, but I want to encourage you. It stands or falls as a whole. 
Everything in the word of God can be trusted. And I'm not asking you, God is not asking you to have blind faith. You hear this word, this phrase thrown around, you know, like, man, blind faith. Christians are not asked to have blind faith. That's right. There is a pile, a mountain of evidence for everything that the Bible says. There's so much evidence for what the Bible says being true. It takes more faith to not believe it. And in fact, I would say that atheists are the ones who have blind faith more often than not. For many of the things they believe have no evidence and can't be proven. A lot of what the Bible says to us, we're able to go visit the archaeological sites and confirm what the Bible said was true. The Bible tells us things thousands of years before science even discovers those things. I'll talk about that more next week. But the Bible is true. And it's not one of those things like the world says today like this. You got to find your own truth. The, The world says, you know, speak your truth. Live your truth. Listen, truth is not a personalized commodity. Truth is not flexible. Flexible truth is just your opinion. The truth is true and anything else is false. Today we're dealing with the same things that Peter wrote about. People who are ignorant and unstable twisting what the Bible says and trying to make it say things that are different. And so you're warned against that, to not do that, because God has spoken the truth and you can trust it. So here's what you should do with the Bible as we close this up. What should we do with the scriptures? First, read them, please. And I know you're all going to rush home tonight. You're going to be desperate to jump back into your Bibles and, and start reading it. Amen. 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 Yeah. Right. Okay. It's going to be amazing. Read it for your sake. Read it for your sake, because in the Bible, the Lord, he teaches you how to be blessed, how to thrive, all the things that you wonder about and have questions about that matter. God answers in his word. He teaches you where you come from and how you can know your loves and how to have a successful marriage and what to look for in a partner and how to raise kids so they don't turn into terrorists and how to manage your money and how you should evaluate a church when you go there and how you should treat people who harm you and how to forgive them and and then how to be forgiven of sin. That's a pretty big deal so that you can have eternal life. That's a really big deal. And so many of the struggles that we go through in life are because we don't listen to what God has already spoken to us in his word. All this wealth, this treasure of wisdom is just sitting there. And I'll confess, sometimes I take it for granted. So read it for your sake. It will bless you. And please read it for other people's sake. Here's what it says, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Man, this passage is probably more relevant to American Christians than many other Christians throughout the last 2,000 years. Many of us are living, I would say, with a degree of shame because we are not equipped to defend our faith. And so when people throw up objections against God or against his word or against his people, a lot of Christians, I'm not saying you do this, but a lot of people, man, they feel shame. They feel doubts. They worry because they haven't equipped themselves with the truth. 
And man, then they're not able to correctly explain what the word of God says. It's not that you have to know everything or have all the scriptures memorized, but if you'll read it some on just a regular basis, you'll start to gain an understanding and a sense of supernatural wisdom about what is true and what's not true. And you'll be able to identify falsehoods and truth. And you might not know like exactly what verse talks about that, but you're like, I know what the Bible says something about that. I'm going to go home and look it up. And you won't be led astray so easily. I know a lot of Christians who say, I want to share my faith. I want to tell people about Jesus, but I'm nervous because what if they ask me questions? And I, and I want to like lovingly challenge you right now. A lot of you would have a lot more boldness to share your faith if you actually read the Bible. Because then you would be equipped to answer a lot of questions. And I'll, and I'll encourage you with this, too. You don't have to have all the answers to share your faith. You just have to tell people how God has changed your life. But the more you understand about God's word, the more equipped you'll be to help other people find life in Jesus. And that is the purpose of Scripture. I'll close with this. John 20, verse 30. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. That is the purpose of the word of God. God didn't give us scripture so that we'd have a list of rules, do's and don'ts. It was so that we could know who Jesus is and how to find eternal life through the power of his name. That is the purpose. That is the message. That's the good news. That's why we should want to read it, because the news is good for us. God wants to have a relationship with you, and he has chosen to reveal himself to you through his word. You get to know God. Isn't that amazing? Will you bow your heads with me? Thank you, Lord. Maybe you're here tonight, too, and you say, I need to put my faith and my trust in what the Bible says. I need to trust God. And maybe some of you have never put your faith in Jesus. The Bible says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you're like, well, well, I can't be saved. I've done so many things that are wrong, and I've sinned, and I've done things I'm embarrassed of. But the Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are no exceptions. Even you, even me. If we put our trust in Jesus and allow him to be the Lord of our lives, recognizing him as king, then the Bible says our sins will be forgiven. Our names will be written in the book of life. We'll become children of God and receive an eternal inheritance. There is nothing greater And I pray that if you're here and you need to accept Jesus tonight, you won't let this opportunity slip slip by you. So if you're ready, just pray this with me. Just say, God, I need you. I know that I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. I believe that he rose again by your power. And Lord, I give you my life. I accept Jesus. I want to follow him from this day forward. I thank you for loving me and leading me. And I promise I won't take it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.